I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Jerry Maguire in Jerry Maguire. It's weird when we came up with the little intro bit that we do at the beginning of this podcast Uh that we didn't have the foresight to recognize that this would happen. (laughs) It's maybe surprising that we've gone, what, 18 movies without his name being in the title of the film. That's Mm -hmm. kind of impressive. This is going to happen three times more. It's going to happen with uh, Jack Reacher. Tom Cruise is Jack Reacher in Jack Reacher. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise is Jack Reacher in Jack Reacher Never Look Back or whatever that (laughs) film is called. And then minor spoilers for the end of the film, I guess. But Tom Cruise is eventually the mummy in The Mummy. (laughs) He probably has another name, though. Nick something? <laughs> okay, I honestly sure. can't go any deeper than that on the lore of the dark universe. Yeah, That's going to be a fun film to talk about, but probably not as much fun to talk about as Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire. We've been looking forward to this one since the start of this podcast run. It is wild that this is 1996, that this is just a few months after Mission Impossible. What a year for this guy. It exceeded expectations. I was really excited to watch this again. I don't think I've really seen it as an adult, or if I did... I didn't have strong enough memories of it, so it was still full of like really lovely surprises. So I just, I had a great time watching this last night. I really did. Lovely surprises and a lot of recognizable landmarks by which you might navigate. This is, sure, if not the most quotable film of all time, it definitely has to be up there, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So many just just chunks of language that have come out of this film that now feel a little bit hacky, right? You've got to do that. Seinfeld mediation. You've got to do that Casablanca mediation where something can feel tropey, can feel cliched, but then you have to remember, oh no, this is where it came from. Right, right. This is where that started. Do you have a standout favorite line? Do you have like one that that resonates for you above even all the others? Yes. That's more than a dress. That's an Audrey (laughs) Hepburn movie. That's my favorite too. It's a great line. Tell me your movie is produced by James L. Brooks without telling me your movie is produced by James L. Brooks. That is exactly, that is, I mean, Cameron Crowe is a protege of Brooks anyway, so there's a lot Mm. of that influence. There's a lot of that lineage, I think, in his script work in particular, but that is the most written line in a movie that is is very written. written. Yeah, I I love love it though. though. And the delivery, I think, makes it seem like organic and natural. I I think it's lovely. That is a point that we are going to come back to, I think, again and again and again. This is the best cruise. This is... This is the best cruise. A very... you will get no argument from me. Strikingly atypical cruise, Mm -hmm. which is interesting in and of itself, I think. But I don't think he ever gives a better performance than this. Yeah. A more emotionally grounded, more intimate, more sexy performance. But also more elevated, too. I've never seen him just like swing for the fences with comedy the way that he does. And it lands. It makes he really makes me laugh. Losing control of his voice, even. Yeah. That's. Yeah. You're never going to see that again. Like maybe if we go all the way back to risky business or we go all the way back to to. No, not even that. (laughs) Uh, Well, we have so much to talk about and we're so eager Mm. to get into it. But. Well, I have the trailer game this week, which is you going do. to be difficult because this isn't a film with a, uh, what do you call it, uh, structure? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so much of that. So here goes. Okay. I am a big-hearted, avuncular 1970s man who sits behind a desk and offers you aphorisms, truisms, if you will, and I think you will because I remind you of your mentor or your high school teacher or your dad. I remind you of a time when things were good and when people were decent and when music was still real music that you could listen to on the radio, even if you had to change the station a few times to find just the exactly perfect song to sing along to as you're changing your life. 
like Jerry Maguire did one time. Let me tell you about this guy. He woke up one morning and decided that the world needed to be different. What if there was decency? What if there was kindness? What if there were 31 needle drops in the span of a single film? They said it couldn't be done. And maybe they were right, but he's gonna try in a movie by filmmaker Cameron Crowe, executively produced by James L. Brooks, and you can hear it in every single line. I'm an avuncular man. Go to a movie theater. Go see Jerry Maguire. <laughs> that was very cute. I like that one, yeah. The guy who does that in the film was not an actor. They wanted to get Billy Wilder for that role and sure. pursued him. Like Cameron Crowe and Tom Cruise went to his house to try and persuade <laughs> him to take this role. And he said, no, no, I don't want to do this. You need to get yourself an actor. I'm not an actor. Mm. So they got themselves the next best thing to an actor, which was Jared Jusim, who was the executive vice president of the intellectual property department of Sony Pictures Entertainment Incorporated. Not an actor, <laughs> just a business guy. Shot it apparently in his office. That's wow. his real office. And shot all of those little bumpers in like 15 minutes. I thought he was cute. He's I so liked cute. him. Yeah. It reminds me of the structure of When Harry Met Sally, where we have yes. those interstitial drops of the elderly couples talking about how they fell in love, which mm -hmm. is just a weird conceit. I don't know where it came from in that film. I don't know where it came from in this <laughs> film. But it's kind of adorable. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. So do you have an innate fondness for Cameron Crowe? I don't know about innate, but recently I've been <laughs> thinking about Cameron Crowe and about how much I was surprised by what was his stuff because I don't think I had realized or or put together who he was but recently I watched Say Anything for the first sure. time yeah. and I really enjoyed it and just enjoyed that kind of like the lightness he has on his feet with dialogue and the way that he explores relationships I guess yeah. uh, and then that movie like really took a swing that I wasn't expecting when you know the dad ends up yeah actually going to prison for like <laughs> tax fraud I was like oh dip <laughs> okay and Not oddly, even tax fraud for like uh, basically embezzling and stealing from old people, right? Yeah, like, yeah. An being oddly a bad, bad recurring dude. beat in Cameron Crowe movies. Yeah. I guess so. Anyway, I have really enjoyed it. And I remember looking up the list of all of his films and being like, oh, man, I need to watch all of these. But I don't think that I then followed through on that. <laughs> so that's where I am. It's a very erratic filmography. Like he obviously makes a huge mark with his directorial debut with Say Anything in 1989. He's already kind of made a name for himself. He writes on Fast Times at Ridgemont High, right? That is based in large part on his personal experience. He writes on the wildlife. He directs Say Anything. He directs singles. Jerry Maguire is a huge swing for him. Mm. And then he goes on in 2000 to write and direct Almost Famous, which is also kind right. of autobiographical, semi-autobiographical. He returns to Cruise in 2001 with Vanilla Sky mm -hmm. and then really tanks his career. Like as hard as anyone in the modern era of Hollywood has tanked their career, he tanks his in 2005 with Elizabethtown. Oh, which is just such I a forgot that was him. See, and I haven't seen that one. Yeah. But yeah, we talked about that for an interview, right? That's the yeah, exactly. That's, that's Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst, Dunst yeah. Orlando Bloom. Yes. Yeah, Manic yeah. Pixie Dream that's Girl. That's Manic Pixie Dream Girl, the movie, and See, that's the and thing. And this is a problem that Cameron Crowe, I think, has. He he writes these women who are definitely lovely, but they they really do only exist to inspire the male character like they really See, do. I think that that is an absolutely fair criticism of most of his filmography. Mm -hmm. I found it really refreshing in this film that Dorothy articulates a desire herself to be inspired. Totally. Like mm -hmm. she, it seems to me, has more interiority than she does. other Cameron Crowe 
protagonists or love interests, we should round out his filmography and very quickly say that he rebounds from Elizabeth Ann because you can recover. Your career can survive a bomb, but your career finds it very difficult to survive mockery and ridicule. And that's what happened to Elizabeth Tan was yeah. that it was the joke. It was the punchline for a long time. He doesn't make another film until 2011 when he makes We Bought a Zoo, which by all accounts is very I charming. I love We Bought a Zoo. I know you do. I I've love it. still never seen it, but yeah. I want to very much. And then he down near sinks his career again by making Aloha a hugely ambitious, really big budget, like cast of thousands film that is about nothing yeah, and kind of has like a weird political heart about, you know, U.S. military conquest of both space and Hawaii. It's a strange one. It's a really weird one. one. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, the Cameron Crowe story is this, this swing from success to, yeah, a kind of mockery. But yeah, tell me more about what you think about Dorothy in this film and about her role as this yeah. kind of, you know, well, Dorothy, leader and follower. Dorothy makes me think that the film is at least self-aware about the fact that, you know, it is not enough. Well, I don't even know. Would it be enough for her to just be adored by him if she felt properly adored by him? Textually, I think not. I think I think she wants to be adored. She wants to be respected. Certainly that's important to her. But also she wants to feel something larger, right? She wants to feel a right, to feel that she is something. a part of something mm-hmm. worthwhile or magnificent, or I don't exactly know what that adjective is. To express a desire for something larger seems to me to be the functional antithesis of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl accusation, right? That the Manic Pixie Dream Girl only orbits the protagonist, only Mm -hmm. desires fulfillment through him. And I think that very clearly when she decides to take the job in San Diego, then when she decides to get married, then when she decides that she doesn't want to be married, we're seeing her make choices for herself all the way through the film that really really sideline Jerry, don't you think? It, it is complicated. And I think one of the reasons that, that it feels complicated and hard for me to unpick is because her career is so tied to Jerry. Like her career is to, it's not supposed to be be his secretary, but it sure feels like be his secretary. I know that she's an accountant, but, you know. She's a generic thin. business manager kind of person. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. So let's track it as we move through. Sure. And maybe I can start to kind of unpick the things that frustrate me as we go because that's certainly how I felt it when the movie was playing is it'd be going and going and be like how did we get here and I think especially there's just (laughs) something about the movie that's very like clearly written by a man that gets really frustrating to me personally sometimes especially when it gets so close and then we'll biff it yeah you know it's funny that I was talking earlier about the James Albrooks of it all Mm -hmm. but really there's a lot of Nancy Myers in this too which of course there's a lot of hybridization there too in terms of your approach to writing and your approach to characterization but it does feel a lot as though Cameron Crowe writes women the way that Nancy Myers writes men she (laughs) loves men and writes bad men yeah and I think that maybe there's something similar though maybe Cameron Crowe's women are Flawed characters in different ways to Nancy Myers' men. Yes, yes, I would say so. This movie starts to take shape in 1989. We've got Cameron Crowe, who is fresh from the success of Say Anything, who is mm-hmm. like really starting to make a name for himself. We've got James L. Brooks, who is fresh from the success of Broadcast News. Oh, yeah. And we've got Tom Hanks, who is fresh from the success of Big. <laughs> and those three <laughs> men want to work together. Ah. And this is the idea. As I said, Crowe is like a protege of James L. Brooks. And Brooks shows Crow this photograph of sports agent Gary Wishard and NFL linebacker and Oklahoma boy and University of Oklahoma alum oh. Brian Bosworth. Oh, yeah. The boss. Uh, yeah. Sure. And Crow goes off to write the script by himself, to develop the story and write the script by himself. 
it takes a long time and it's very bad. As Crow uh. said in an interview with Deadline, quote, the first draft of Jerry Maguire was this basic long vomit draft. I remember yeah. Jim saying, I've never read so much story with so little plot. Uh. So it's good that that was completely <laughs> overhauled and revised. And yeah, a lot of sure. plot was added. <laughs> this is a shapeless, formless, shaggy dog kind of story, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't look at it that way. I rarely do. Unless it's like super ultra clear, I often don't notice structure or if it's completely absent. So that's that's one of the reasons I think that I started listening to your podcast and, and, and how much you have taught me about storytelling is like where the structure is supposed to, to, to settle in. So I didn't notice it as much, but I'm certain that you're correct. I think this is a great example of the fact that you don't need a structure. You don't need to build your your story out I mean, of traditionally shaped building blocks. You clearly, can do this something. movie did all right. Exactly right. Like it is a huge success and and really works on its own terms too. But it is a triumph of of magic over craft. It mm -hmm. is very ill disciplined. Yeah. It is very shaky. The way that we transit between scenes sometimes is just real first yes. pass stuff. Yes, that's Although, true. Although. There's also very clearly the impression that Crow worked for five years on this script. So the script is packed. This film is dense. Yeah. This film does not let up for a moment. Sometimes I will admit when I am, you know, when I've watched the film the first time and I'm just like finalizing my notes, I will shuttle through the film on like two times speed or even two and a half times speed, depending on what kind of movie it is. And you can't do that with this film. You just can't. It becomes unwatchable huh. the moment you try to accelerate it because there's just so much stuff packed into every scene. Every opportunity for a joke, there's yeah. a line there. Every opportunity for an interaction, there's something happening. It's it's manic, but it's yeah. manic in this brilliant way that really, yeah, that, that is just magical, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. There are a lot of moving pieces, too, because we have you know, j just the idea of this career and the ideology, then the actual, all of the football stuff and all of the Cuba Gooding Jr. stuff, yeah. all the Rod Tidwell stuff, the romantic relationship, the kid. There's just like a lot of things that maybe ought not to work together, but they really do. Like, you're right. The magic is just really strong in this movie. And fundamentally, it's a romantic comedy that's two hours and 20 minutes long. Right? And that shouldn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Plus the ex-girlfriend, fiance person. She's the only thing that maybe doesn't work for me. But yeah. Oh, I think Kelly Preston gives such a performance in that Certainly. role. Mm -hmm. I, again, love how sophisticated it is. I love that it goes one or two degrees further than the normal, like, prosaic color-by-numbers version of that character sure. would go. She's just a little bit more complex. The fact that she's really genuinely upset when he breaks up with her, <laughs> despite this part, because you're expecting her to be this, you know, she's the hard-edged businesswoman who's right. going to dump our hero in the first act so that he can get with the wholesome small-town mm -hmm. girl in the mm -hmm. last act. But that's not what we're it's, doing. We don't right. sell either of those characters out in quite that way. I love that's that. Yeah. What do you think of the idea of this film existing with Tom Hanks in the starring role? Now that you say it, like, it's hard to not imagine him yelling, show me the money. Like, of course you can see it. I think it's better with Tom Cruise, especially because... Despite what we have often said, Tom Cruise is sexy in this movie. He is sexy in this movie. And I think this movie without the sexy is not as good. I think that's absolutely fair. And I don't think that Tom Hanks can bring the sexy. He cannot bring the sexy. No. no. He knows this about himself and that's fine. He doesn't try to bring the sexy. He brings the romantic and the cozy and the comfortable yeah. and the sharp even, but would, not. I think have been much closer to that kind of performance, right? It would necessarily have been that much closer to You've Got Mail or Sleepless yes. in Seattle. It would have been more yes. in that mold, a more traditional romantic comedy. Whereas I think that Cruz's 
incredibly manic energy through yeah. this film. Mm-hmm. Really does elevate both him and Gooding, who are, yeah. who are just trying to outdo each other in how big they can go. For real. And they, they really do, I think, elevate the whole piece. Mm-hmm. So the movie's fundamentally a fusion of like two big ideas, right? The life of Lee Steinberg, a real-life sports agent who worked as a technical consultant on the movie, and the 1991 mission statement of Jeffrey Katzenberg, the then head of Disney. Have you heard about this, the real-life mission statement? No. Okay, so... In 1991, Disney is kind of on the ropes. They've invested a lot of money and their movies are just not performing as well as they should. This is the memo, this 28-page memo that's sent out to all Disney employees. Where does that put us in the in the Disney Renaissance timeline then? Well, we're not quite at the... Like, the Renaissance has broken. Right. right. Because we had the Little, Little Mermaid's Mermaid. 89, yes. right? Okay. But we, and, and Beauty and the Beast is 1991. This is happening oh, right around yeah. the same time. Okay. But we don't have the whole Disney filmography in place because we're still making fairly high budget, fairly underperforming live action movies like a movie that I love, The Rocketeer, also comes out in 1991. (laughs) And basically no one pays any attention to it. Hmm. So Katzenberg writes this this blistering 28-page memo, sends it out to everyone, and it's credited for like reshaping. I should say, it is credited in large part by Jeffrey Katzenberg, a guy who absolutely loves the limelight. He is a guy who was not a performer, but dearly wanted to be and would Mm. take credit for everything that happened around him, no matter who was really Mm. responsible for it. He eventually leaves Disney in a huff in 1996, right around the time of this production, where he will go off with Geffen and with uh, Spielberg and form DreamWorks and will basically single-handedly force the production of Shrek as a raised middle digit response wow. to disney yeah oh He's god okay <laughs> not like a bad dude but like sure. definitely loves loves the fame but i've pulled a couple of quotes from that memo that i'm going to read right now okay quote it used to be that there was a reliable criterion for a film's successes whether or not it had legs studios would toy with different strategies for opening a film all with the goal of helping it develop legs through positive word of mouth now the term legs has all but disappeared from the hollywood vocabulary Thanks to the dictates of the blockbuster mentality, the shelf life of many movies has come to be somewhat shorter than a supermarket tomato. So obviously, prescient. Okay, (laughs) yeah, definitely. And then I pulled this other quote too. The extraordinary popularity of such films as Pretty Woman, Ghost, and Home Alone teaches the real lesson of 1990. Despite all the hype and promotional noise, in the end, the public will search out the movies it wants to see. And these films, more often than not, will be primarily based on two basic elements. A good story, well executed. Not stars, not special effects, not casts of thousands, not mega budgets, not hype. Hmm. And it's fascinating to see because this really is what happens with Disney through his tenure is that they reorient to making much less ambitious films with a much higher degree of execution. Hmm. That is what gets us to modern Disney, this perfect oiled machine right, that we have today. And obviously he's foreseeing an industry that has sliding still further into mega Absolutely. budgets, mega hype, star and, yeah. names. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's become more and more reductive and reduced in yes. that sense. So it's it's really interesting to see that vision. And I've got to tell you, as you know, and I'm really addressing the listeners here, and I'm not surprising them either. I am a man kind of inclined toward the manifesto, right? I am oh, a man yes. inclined toward <laughs> the the optimistic reframing of the issue and, and the overcoming of these small and petty inconveniences mm. with the power of like rhetoric and inspiration. That's the thing that I love. Yes. I respond to that stuff. So obviously this is going to work for me. Does the notion of 
a manifesto like mean anything to you? Is that is that it a does. way of it's, it's, inspiring I think you? it's funny that you keep saying manifesto because they never say that in the film. No, they no. either say memo or mission statement. It's definitely not a mission statement. I think it's really weird that it's he not. says that. Like that's not. I mean, statement alone, that's a sentence, my guy. And maybe two he's or three. Differentiating himself. The reason that he keeps saying it's not a memo is to differentiate it from Katzenberg. That, oh, that is an ongoing joke in the structure that's hilarious. of the film. It's not sure. a memo. It's but a it is a manifesto. Statement. I think you're definitely it right is. about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And no, of course I love it. Yeah. It's a strange the opening is maybe a little bit clunky. It's a lot of voiceover, like a lot of voiceover. But and it's a lot of very written voiceover. Very yeah. written voiceover. But by the time that we actually get to it and when he walks in and everybody applauds, like that's cool. It's great. I had actually forgotten that they all applaud him because I only remembered him getting fired. <laughs> so I'm glad it at least started with the way to go. And then that savage little how long do you give him? Ah, oh, week. Yeah. Like, awful. Ooh, cold. Awful. Yeah. Cold stuff. So by the time that Cameron Crowe has bullied the script into submission, by the time mm-hmm. he's made it what it is today, Tom Hanks is simply too old. He is 39 and mm-hmm. Cruz is only 34 when he makes this film. And oh. that would have, I think, changed the nature of it. And Cruz yeah. is maybe even playing a little younger than that, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. And she was 26. Per yeah, the... the oldest 26 in the yeah. world. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest 26-year-old in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. Them being young, scrappy idealistic, sexy, really helps the film. Yeah. So Cruz and Crow have already met. They met all the way back in 1982 when Crow was writing on Fast Times at Richmond High and Cruz was in Chicago shooting Risky Business. They meet through their mutual acquaintance and friend, Sean Penn. When Hanks drops out of McGuire, Crow sends Cruz the script, just saying, is this a thing you might be interested yeah. in doing? And he says, absolutely, yes. And Crow says, excellent, you're hired. And Cruz says, no, I want to come in and audition. I want to come to you. I will do everything you want me to do. Put me through my paces. Find out if I am right for this movie, because if I'm not right, then I don't want to do it. Mm. And he really hands himself over to Crow, which is so interesting because that's not the experience we described last week when he was working on Mission Impossible with yeah. the And I wonder how much Cruz was changed by the experience of working on Mission Impossible and by taking that very prominent executive producer role, right? right. He's almost directing that film. He is directing certain parts of that film. Mm-hmm. And here... He really surrenders himself yeah. to Crow. This is an absolutely consistent Crow performance, I think. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to circle back around to this like four or five more times at least, but he really is just fantastic, right? I think he's great. No, I really do. Yeah, it's funny because I'm thinking now about like the kinds of men that I have seen Cameron Crow write, specifically thinking of the John Cusack role. Yeah. And it is, there is a similarity there for sure. There, there's, you know, something about that like definitely kind of a deep soulfulness, an idealism. But also like a kookiness, like a uh, yeah. not quite in control of your own arms and legs and limbs and, you know. Sure. Yeah. That physical. Yeah. Excess, yes, yeah. Definitely. And yeah, like a kind it. of thwarted idealism. Almost. Thwarted for Like sure. an idealism yeah. that's been bruised by the world is mm-hmm. very much, yeah, very consistent through line on his work. Patricia Arquette, Kate Beckinsale, Bridget Fonda, Winona Ryder, Marissa Tomei, Cameron Diaz, Uma Thurman, Connie Britton, and Jennifer Lopez were all considered for the part of Dorothy, which means the producers auditioned everyone in Hollywood. They just cast the widest possible net because they knew that it had to work. What they loved about Zellweger, who was very fresh-faced, very new. This is often described as her first screen performance, which, of course, it isn't. She's done multiple films. She's fantastic in Empire Records the year before. It's like an absolutely pivotal role in that film. Just 
really terrific. But this is, of course, her breakout. Mm -hmm. What they love about her is her chemistry with Cruz. There's a story, I I could not find absolute confirmation of the story online. I could only find people repeating it. So I don't know for sure that this is true, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because it's very (laughs) cute with this little asterisk. She's told by her agent that the important thing is her chemistry with Cruz. This is really what they're testing for in the audition. This is really what matters. So she goes in and it's all a very traditional audition environment. Sure. And then she says, thank you very much. And she gathers up her stuff and she leaves. And she's in the hallway outside the audition room when she realizes, I didn't make an impression. I didn't do what I said I was going to do. So she bursts back into the room and launches herself at Tom Cruise and just wraps herself around him saying, look, look, we've got chemistry. (laughs) And apparently that was what did it. She is also never better than in this film. I She's wonderful in love this. Love Renée yeah. Zellweger. We are big fans, mm-hmm. I think. And I think that she does so many different things through her career. Yeah. But this is it. This is the ur performance for her, right? Yeah, I think she's terrific in this. I really do. She has such a glow about her and obviously they like actually shot with a nice soft focus glow for her and and for him, which is kind of nice. I, I feel like you don't see that anymore. We're just like we're going to overlight you. We're going to do the the key lights and make your hair glow and soften the focus just a little bit. And I just think that's charming and lovely. It is. I yeah. I I don't know. I mean her with that perfect 90s hair and that perfect 90s dress. It's a movie that doesn't have a great deal of of visual style, except no. to the degree that its visual style is, this looks like a really competently made movie. I do think the lighting stands out because the lighting is like almost doing a chiaroscuro thing sometimes. Sometimes, like, yeah. It's, yeah. Th- there are times when it feels quite like parts of Cruz's face especially are underlit and then parts are like beaming so yeah. and then there's like a one sequence when he's talking uh with Kush and Kush's dad and they're all sitting around a coffee table just glowing and yeah. I'm like is this table made of light what are we doing like I don't mind it it looks good especially in Cruz's white shirt but I do think that the lighting specifically is a standout yeah. This movie's shot by famed cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, who is, of mm. course, who has already at this point really made an impact in Hollywood by shooting Schindler's List for Spielberg. Oh. And then he is going to be Spielberg's guy because after this, he makes a few other films with a few other people, but then he shoots 19 back to back Spielberg movies, wow. including both Minority Report and War of the Worlds. So we'll, we'll have get to. the opportunity sure. to talk about. He won a an Academy Award for Schindler's List, and he's about to win another for Saving Private Ryan. Wow. As at oh, this okay. point in the timeline. He's also married to Holly Hunter at this point. So, hey, Janusz, how's your life? Is your life pretty good there <laughs> in 1996? Okay. <laughs> cool. We should also talk about Cuba Gooding Jr., who yes. we've previously talked about in terms of his very brief cameo in A Few Good Men, who here, of course, is the star of the show. This is a mm-hmm. giant, giant uh, performance. He breaks in John Singleton's directorial debut, Boys in the Hood, in 1991. He appears fleetingly in A Few Good Men in 1992. This is his 11th movie role and earns him the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He will go on to appear in As Good As It Gets and Pearl Harbor and American Gangster. And then a string of direct-to-video movies before kind of returning in Lee Daniels' The Butler in 2013. And then playing, of course, uh, in American Crime Story, the series that they did on O.J. Simpson in 2016. And if you can hear hesitance in my voice, it's because I'm very sorry to announce at this point that Cuba Gooding Jr. has been accused as of April 2020 by more than 30 women of uh, unwanted sexual touching, as the crime is defined in the Mm -hmm. state of New York, sexual assault and rape. 
He has settled many of those cases out of court, and in some other cases, he has pled guilty. So these are confirmed charges against him, and that's really dispiriting and, yes. and sad and awful and just a tough thing to have in your head when you're watching this film, honestly. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had to work hard at pushing that away to be able to try to watch the film for what it is. Yeah. That's part of what makes Jerry make the manifesto yeah. is that, you know, they're asking the football player, how old was the girl this time? 16, 17? And he's like, this is gross. And it's a gross part of our business. And Absolutely we shouldn't allow right. it. And so the fact that it's actually happening probably on the same set is really upsetting. Yeah, I, I think the charges against Gooding come from much later in his life, but still, yeah, I mean, the, mm, the, that, okay, yeah. it's also I still a know. film set in yeah. 1996, so, so yes, probably. By probably, the, yeah. By any expectation that we have here in 2024, yes, almost definitely mm -hmm. it was happening on that same set. And you're right, it, it is, yeah, really disappointing and, and tough to reconcile when you're watching this film. Like, it's always difficult when an actor that you enjoy mm -hmm. falters like this, falls like this, you know, transgresses like this. It's particularly difficult here because, you know, his his relationship with his wife on screen is so lovely, yeah. is so joyous and, and effortless seeming. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's a particularly difficult bridge to get over, I think. Yeah. What do you think of that supporting actor win? It's, it's interesting. Like, I, I would like to know what the other films were and what the other performances were that he was up against. It's the only one I have at my fingertips was William H. Macy in Fargo. Oh, you know, I've never seen Fargo. Isn't that wild? Uh -huh. Well, that might be our bonus episode. In that would be <laughs> That's so <laughs> in weird. The wildest swing we've ever taken. <laughs> uh, he is so much fun. And I really enjoy the performance. Like, I really do. Um, it's so over the top that he gets maybe two moments that feel real. One is the conversation when McGuire asks him, what do you know about dating single mothers? And mm -hmm. he's like, plenty. I was raised by a single mother. Like, right Such then he a seems like a real person. Followed by the worst moment in the film. Shoplifting no. the pootie is the worst moment Good in the film. It's terrible. God. It's terrible. It's the worst that moment. That happened. And I had to, like, get up from my desk and go take a long walk yeah. and go, like, look out to the ocean. <laughs> And, and Where'd you find the ocean? Yell my questions to an uncaring <laughs> sky and, and really, really debate whether or not this whole civilization thing was worth it. <laughs> Shoplift the pooty? It's terrible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Not so good. Anyway, I crashed your description of a lovely moment right. when he talks about but his that single was, mother raising him. That was a lovely moment. So great. Yeah. And then the only moment in the movie that made me like actually kind of tear up was right after he leaves the field after the injury turned into the dance routine and all of the reporters are out yeah. there and he sees Jerry and he like points at him and starts to cry and they hug and I was like dip okay I'm out I'm waving Did waving my hand at my eyes cuz Really only tear up then? Yeah. Wow. I will admit I am not like an easy crier. I, I've often said on podcasts before that I don't cry at movies. It's just not like a way that that my emotions manifest themselves mm -hmm. when I'm interacting with fiction, right? I teared up so many times at the end of this film, wow. just over and over and over again. That's and because there's something about like Crow's vision, like as as politically naive as it is, as politically centrist as it is, as weirdly kind of of baby boomer intersecting with early Gen X kind of you know standard by the numbers political perspective, right? Mm -hmm. as, as formulaic as that is, wouldn't it be nice if everyone were nice? Wouldn't it be nice? There's if just everyone was just there aren't decent, any real problems, that be good? and if everyone was just kind, the world would be a utopia. Like yeah. you are failing to understand like systemic systems of oppression, right? Yeah. But all of that aside, the idea of just trying to do better the idea of just being a decent man yeah ah i love it yeah i absolutely love it it, it is yeah 
really genuinely inspiring, which I think is a strong element uh, yes. at the heart of this film. Yes. We should talk a little more about the Academy Awards because, of course, Tom Cruise is nominated for Best Actor but loses to Jeffrey Rush in Shine, which is... Oh. I mean, yeah, I love Jerry Maguire, sure. but okay, Jeffrey Rush for Shine should... Have you yeah, seen Shine? I have not seen Shine. I think this is a really interesting period in your personal like cinema-going history mm. because this is 96, so you were 12 years old. Yeah. Well, you weren't seeing... I, th- I feel like you weren't seeing a lot of films for this year and maybe like the following year until no. Titanic. Yes, yeah. Th- these were all things that I would have watched probably after the fact, sure. or, or at least more or less. Uh, but like Independence Day and Twister, the, the big hits of 96. Yeah. But did you see Jerry Maguire when it came out or not I until much later? I couldn't have. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do think that when I did see it, I saw the full R-rated version because I remembered like the sex scene and, and I remembered all of the boy butt. <laughs> so <laughs> There's a lot of boy butt. There's a lot of boy butt. There's some really excellent, what is that V shape that a man's body makes yeah. right above? Uh, yeah. Here, let me lift my shirt and show you. <laughs> <laughs> I like One of these. that shape. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I remember those being kind of like moments, but also like I remember feeling like it was the most romantic movie I had ever seen. Sure. I remember the song being on the radio, Secret Garden. Yeah. I remember that for sure, and like all the little clips from the movie. So it probably wasn't too long after that, that like I was, saw the yeah, whole thing. Maybe a, a VHS release. Yeah. This is the highest selling VHS tape ever hmm. that wasn't made by Disney. The only things wow. that surpass this are like Disney animated sure. classics. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I can see it. That's interesting. I wonder if we had it on VHS. I'm really not sure. I, I mean, can't statistically, remember the exact everyone reason. did. So, statistically, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, maybe I did. I don't know. It's interesting. Besides Cruz and Gooding, Jerry Maguire is nominated for Best Picture and Editing, but loses to The English Patient for both of those. And oh, it's nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but loses to Fargo, which, mm. nuh-uh. I, th- I think this film should have taken Best Original Screenplay and should have taken uh, should have taken the Editing Award. I think the editing makes this film, even really? though it is very bad on occasion. Huh. That's so interesting. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I only remember, I guess, the bad parts, like the moments that are like these weird crash yeah. cuts. The moments that stand out, I think, yeah. really stand out. But I this suppose is you do so need the editing. so it is stuffed. So yeah. That I think, yeah, in the hands of a less skilled editor, this yeah, film is incomprehensible or four hours long. Right. One of those and there two were things. a couple of moments that were like two seconds long, but that were standouts for me. I'm thinking particularly towards the end when Maguire is going back to Dorothy, I think is when this is. But it, it might, it's one of his airport sequences because he's jumping on all of these planes to go see these football games. Yeah. And there's like, I swear, two seconds, maybe three, where he's walking through an airport and it's like very sepia toned and he's wearing the sunglasses and it's just encapsulating everything about 90s style that I remember and love. And it's no time at all. The ties are extremely bad. Oh my God, the ties are so bad. The the ties are so terrible. There isn't a single good tie in this entire film. Bad suits. Uh, I don't know. Some of those suits are really good. Yeah? Which ones? Just like the black Armani, like we're, we're moving into like Italian couture. In like mm-hmm. the late 1990s, well, I guess still the mid 1990s, but we're just starting to get those like super clean lines. They look yeah. modern. They, you could wear like Cruz's black suit, white shirt ensemble today, 
and look completely sharp and relevant. Wow. I think it looks amazing. I'll have to Not go back. All of it, I don't remember but... him in black. I just remember the weird, like, I don't even know what color, like the grayish suits of yeah, the 90s. There were a lot were of those. So and I'm like, but at those least we're out yeah. of super baggy pants, right? We're, yeah, we're past the, <laughs> that awful <laughs> calamitous time in men's fashion. Fair enough. Yeah. No, but anytime he's in jeans, white V-neck shirt, and like the uh, jacket, whatever that yep. is, and the sunglasses, he looks hot. So Very good. Hot, yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about Bonnie Hunt. Who is Let's just talk about fantastic in this one? She's Our second so appearance from Bonnie Hunt right here on the podcast because, of course, she was the waitress in Rain Man. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's got a right. tiny little bit part there. I, I love, her love what she's doing yeah. in this film. It's so great. It's so unapologetic. Mm-hmm. It's so pr- like I'm not sure that the woman's group is really. I hate needed. the woman's group. I really. Hate, it's a mistake. You think so? Yes. It's just. It's just treated like such a punchline, except when it's treated like something way worse than a punchline. Like I'm thinking specifically of the moment when uh, Dorothy comes back and and first Laurel says, well, I don't think it's good for your son if there's a strange man in the house when he wakes up. And first of all, gross, don't bring single parenting and criticism and judgment into this conversation right now. And then Dorothy is like, well, what about you and your 20 angry women? That's bad for my son, too. It's like, whoa, that's such a such a man's line that they made a woman say, I feel like. I'm always surprised that it's not just more of a punchline, that it's not just these shrill, awful women screeching at each other about how they hate men. Like, it's not that. It's, it's women talking very openly and honestly about their experiences and, and more than anything else, their pain, right? We acknowledge the existence of anger, yes. but it's in the context of pain and, and healing almost. The woman's group itself is not so bad, especially since they do acknowledge that right in the beginning. The first woman who speaks says, you know, we're taught that we're supposed to be in competition with each other, but yeah. actually you all, are, you all are just like me and they hold hands and like that's very sweet. So there are moments where that is drawn back, but ultimately... I do feel like it's played for the, you know, when he comes in, all right, if this is where it has to happen, then this is where it has to happen. And he, and, and even that is like, and then they all kind of swoon for him. It's just weird. I, I don't know. Like both times that he comes in. Yeah. The entrances both times, I yes. guess, kind of work for me. You're right. I don't need them all to be like so teary eyed and like validating their love right at the end of the film. Right. Maybe that could have taken place under different circumstances. But mm-hmm. again, I think that in principle, you're right. That is a thing that ought not to be in the film. It's a thing that we ought not to do. It's a thing mm-hmm. that a male writer and director ought not to do. Mm. I am surprised and relieved that it's a little bit more nuanced and a, a little, little bit more. kinder, a little bit more decent mm-hmm. than it would be in the hands of another writer, perhaps. Yeah, I feel like but that doesn't mean that it's good. Weirdly You're enough, right. like the Tom Hanks version, that's more like you've got mail. This is worse, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know. Uh, but th- yeah, but then we're kind of moving the timeline as well, right? Because it's we're imagining true. what yeah. if that were made in 1992, and if this film yeah. were made in 1992, no, it no, would no, have no, been no. worse in yeah. every, <laughs> in every every possible direction. direction. <laughs> yeah, right. We should definitely talk about Kelly Preston, who I adore in this film, who plays Avery. She appears mm. in Space Camp, a real childhood favorite okay. of mine for obvious reasons. Sounds like it She's would be, sure. She's in Twins. Have you never seen Space Camp? No, I've never Oh my God, kids camp. go to Space Camp and accidentally go to space? <laughs> it's sure. the best. I'll bet it is. It's probably not. I haven't seen I'm it sure since maybe not. 1992. But <laughs> I loved that sure. film when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's Apollo 13, but what if what if what if we're kids? Aww, and Kelly Preston's barely. there being a teenager and is just oh, yeah, yeah, lovely. Absolutely. Okay, sure. Uh she's in twins with Schwarzenegger and DeVito. She's in for the uh-huh. love of the game with Kevin Costner. Preston is a Scientologist from the mid-1980s. Oh. In 1991, marries fellow Scientologist John Travolta. She oh. continues to work consistently in film and television until 
I'm afraid to say 2020, when after a two year battle with breast cancer, she mm. unfortunately passed. Mm. And yeah, I think she is so lovely. She reminds me so much of Kate Walsh, who is, you know, venerated in our house. Yes. She's mm-hmm. bringing I can see that. big Addison Montgomery Shepherd kind of energy to yeah, this role. Sure. And again, I just I love how sophisticated it is compared to where it would be in most versions of the story, right? Yeah. The Tom Hanks version of that character is exactly as flat and as shrill and as terrible sure. as you would expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's fair. That's true. I guess I was I was bothered a bit by her character put in opposition to Dorothy's character because it felt like it was enforcing that binary of... You know, women who are career driven and ambitious are bad for men and women who are domestic and lovely and supportive are good. I'm like, this is gross. But no, that is an exhausted binary that we really need to to live without. But again, the fact that it's they're 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 trying. Yeah, Yeah. that Avery is so like strut. Like she is clearly expecting we are fighting right now, but we are going to work through it because I love you. That that is her final point in that Mm -hmm. fight. And he is the one that breaks it off and she is heartbroken. I really hate the punch. I really hate when she punches him. Yeah, I don't even know if I would go with heartbroken. She is certainly hurt. She's hurt. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, of course, to balance that, too, we have Dorothy, who is still interested in her work, who is still, you know, employing a nanny so that she can commit herself to her business and believes in the the opportunity that she has with Mm -hmm. Jerry, even at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Aside from all of those actors, of course, a cast of thousands. Jerry O'Connell and mm-hmm. Jay Moore being the worst person in the world. <laughs> Just the worst. The unbelievably brilliant Regina King, who Regina is... Regina King is excellent in this. Holy smokes. Yeah. Eric Stoltz in a wild one-scene appearance. Yeah, just like a cameo. Just to show up to be a shark. Yeah, nice. Just so Works. interesting, so strong. And we got to talk about Jonathan Lipnicki. we got to talk yeah. about Ray, uh, the child actor of choice for this yes. period who would go on to appear in... Stuart Little and The Little Vampire and mm-hmm. really not much else past those, in fact, because oh. the shelf life of a child star is fairly brief. I mean, he's consistently gotten work. Oh, yeah. I, just no, not, yeah, yeah. J- just, just not leading man type stuff. But yeah. yeah, he's currently right down the road teaching acting lessons here in Norman. He absolutely yeah. is and is Beloved, by the way, I should say. Yeah. In this film. He really is. Like, it's kind of impossible. Brilliant. But, and it's also like, you know, not to take anything away from him or from his performance, but it's a very well-written kid. It is. Like somebody actually had kids and more importantly, loved kids yeah. and wrote this, yeah. which is to me, I'm tearing up right now, to me, very important because we don't see it enough. Women in Hollywood are always talking about how you can't play a mom. As soon as you play a mom, that's all you're doing because they just make moms so superficial and they yeah. make kids fucking assholes all the time <laughs> which they do in this film with the other little boy the, <laughs> a little bit a, a little bit yeah he's still sweet sometimes too but i i don't know this this movie made me feel like somebody got it yeah. when it came to children who are loved by both i'm gonna say parents and how that other person in the relationship provides a sort of like if not glue then like a magnetic force Mm -hmm. that is important and that the rest of the relationship is informed by you know they talked about that with a lot of subtlety like jerry Maguire's real love for ray was really moving and sweet yeah 
I, I think he is so fantastic with with Lipnicki. I think they yeah. are both so great together. They are. And you're absolutely right. The, the specificity of how you write a child, right? Mm-hmm. This is a stock character that is yeah. 999 times out of 1,000 just unbearable yeah. on screen because they're too cute or they're too authored or they're too written or mm-hmm. whatever. This is a masterpiece in how to do it. And you do it by really committing to the fact that this five-year-old child is a five-year-old child. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The brilliant scene in the car where they are uh, trading trivia with yes. each other. Fantastic. Fantastic. Do you know that stuff. my neighbor has three rabbits? Like, that's, that's just it's where genuine, it goes. Of course it's where it goes. It's yes. genuine delight from yes. Darian. <laughs> how would I know that? <laughs> so good. And, and so true so to the experience cute. of talking to a kid of that age oh, yeah. for whom facts about the world are all interchangeable. Like yep. there's no contextualization for that information. <laughs> you just know things. I know that I know things and I'm going to tell you that I know things. Whether it's yeah. the human head weighs eight pounds or about my neighbor's pet situation. Just really, really fantastic. Yeah. I even love, and and this is the hardest test I think that you can give to any child actor. Mm-hmm. I even love the you said fuck line. Oh, yeah. The delivery there. It's true. So strong. So good. So authentic. Oh, so cute. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I love the line right after that, too, where he's like, I have to go to bed. I hear my mom. I have to go. I hear my mom. (laughs) It's just really cute. (laughs) The movie opens the weekend of December 13th, 1996, opening, of course, at number one on the box office. It charts against the... uh, Whitney Houston, Denzel Washington movie, The Preacher's Wife. Oh, yeah, I saw that one. Which opens at number four. And the Tim Burton Technicolor excess of Mars Attacks, which opens at number two. Yes. This is the third week of the Glenn Close 101 Dalmatians, the live action 101 Dalmatians that they made. really? Yeah, that's in at number three. I didn't realize we were doing live action so long. I guess we were. That one was the outlier. That was so, so early in the Disney remake machine. Yeah. Weird. This is week four of Jingle All the Way and week four of Star Trek First Contact, the second best Uh, Star Trek film. uh It's week five, wildly, of Space Jam and The English Patient and The Mirror Has Two Faces. Space Jam is from another world. Are you kidding me? all opened opposite each other that seems insane and right down at the bottom of the charts of course we have the 24th week of independence day and the 30th week of mission impossible which this weekend took in 745 dollars and the box office still bringing in the receipts did you say 745 dollars in its 30th week mission impossible took 745 dollars at the box office i think it's a per i think it's in three screens and it's a per screen average of like whatever that is so weird yeah (laughs) Jerry Maguire opens with a $17 million domestic weekend and goes on to make $154 million domestic off of a budget of $50 million. The final global box office, $273.6 million. Hot damn. For a two-hour, 20-minute romantic comedy directed by Cameron Crowe. This is the kind of movie I want to write. Like, really? Cards on the table? This is the kind. Terrible news for you. They Uh, don't make these anymore. I know! Like, you have to go to Netflix. I am not the only one who's frustrated by this. And it's not that Netflix isn't making some good stuff. It's just that most of it is not. Most of it is not good. And the fire hose of Netflix does not allow you to discriminate between these films. Yeah, It doesn't allow them to discriminate between these films, really. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, and of course, terrible. going back to the, the Katzenberg memo, of course, everything now is so temporal. Like your your yeah. opening weekend is the only thing that matters. You are not going to stick around in movie theaters, what which a is shame. a thing. That yeah, no one's buying VHS tapes, does, that's for right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. To make 17 million domestic on the opening weekend and then go on to make 154, that's mm-hmm. like a nine and a half multiple. That's wild. 
The other thing that we haven't mentioned about Cameron Crowe, which is possibly the most distinctive thing about Cameron Crowe mm-hmm. in all of his films, the soundtrack. Cameron oh, yeah. Crowe, more so than really any director I can think of, loves him a needle drop. Mm-hmm. There are 33 credited songs at wow. the end of this film, not including the score. So that averages out to one needle drop every four and a half minutes. I really only remember Free Fallen, which is just as good as it ever was. That scene is perfect. That scene is perfect. Dynamite. That scene is per- Dynamite. Cruz trying to sing along to Angel yes. of the Morning and then be like, this isn't the right vibe. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. I uh. love it. Uh, and I love that he can sing. So much of this podcast is just as, I love it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very satisfied podcast That's this good. week. That's good. Yeah. I love that he can actually sing and that he is, he's not, you know, I feel like another director would play it for comedy and like he'd be awful and screechy, but it's great. Or a less secure director would like sweeten it just a little bit. So he's a really great singer. As it is, he's like, he's the second best guy at karaoke. (laughs) Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And that, which is why he wants to sing right now, yeah. you know? Which will absolutely set the stage for us discussing Rock of Ages in a couple of months' time. <laughs> it made me think of Rock of Ages. It's true. Anyway, so the only songs I remember, all that to say, is Free Fallen and Secret Garden. Yeah. And then I don't know what the song is, but I absolutely remembered the melody of whatever is playing when he's he's broken her dress and he's tying it back up and he's kissing her neck. Yeah. You know I am talking about? I can't pull it right now. I don't now. know what it is. Maybe but I'll drop I, it into as... the podcast recording right here. As soon as it came up, I was like, whoa, core memory unlocked. Yeah, this was very, this song and this moment. And it's let's great. jump ahead. We're about to get moment. into our beat okay. by beat and move through the plot of this thing, such uh-huh. as it is. But that is the sexiest scene in a Tom Cruise movie. I right? think so. I cannot imagine we will ever top that. It's like, it's that. And it's romantic. I love yeah. that it's both. It makes it so much better when it's both. It's that perfect combination of of hesitance and like yeah. should we could we ought we but also like enthusiastic and ongoing consent which yep. is so great and they're always hot moving around each other emotionally as well mm-hmm. as physically it yeah no it completely works it is if you just showed someone that scene someone who had never seen a tom cruise movie mm-hmm. you showed him that scene and then say that guy not sexy in any other film that he makes <laughs> they would call you a liar to your face <laughs> yep. because they have such incredible chemistry. Yeah, it's a uh, what a great sequence. It's lovely to to be able to read about this film online because, of course, mm-hmm. the internet is now just a machine that generates articles for the 20th anniversary and the 25th sure. anniversary. Whatever. So Renny Zellweger has given, I don't know, 30 different interviews about what it was like to work on this film. And in every one, she talks about how supportive and generous and genuine and authentic Cruz was. The mm. great story that she tells is his big walkout, right? When they're in that giant cavernous office yes. set with this is so great, many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They shoot all of his coverage first. They mm-hmm. do everything of Cruz first, including the actual exit, right? When she is standing next to him and they walk out out of shot into the elevator and we just hear sure. the ding. Mm-hmm. So they do that. It is incredibly late at night. It is like three o'clock in the morning. Everyone is exhausted. It's a yeah. very trying shoot to make it all work in that space to get all the audio right, all of that stuff. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. He is wrapped and they mm-hmm. start shooting her reverse angles. They're doing all the pickups yeah. on Selbecker and he stands there right where he is supposed to be standing and delivers every single line so that she can react to him right. even though he's not on camera and this won't be used anymore. And she describes it as this very non-movie star, very yes. like active actor performance from him. And yeah, she can't say enough nice things about him, which That's I find lovely. very touching, honestly. Yeah. 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 Let's get into the film then. Let's talk about this opening monologue 
What do you think of the monologue itself? What do you think of the the whole aesthetic of this? This feels more mid nineties than anything else in the film. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't love the voiceover beginning. It's a, it's a it's a bit of a hurdle. It reminded me of the real world. Like MTV's the real yeah. world. It reminded. Weird. I think that that was the one that sprang to mind. But I think that it's a convention in mid nineties television to mm-hmm. have this kind of like very blunt, but also written, very authored kind of monologue over your opening credits or whatever to like set the scene you know yeah I it guess. feels very I kind of know. Huh. that that mid-90s corporate punk rock you know sure yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this isn't an aaron sorkin opening monologue but it is as close as cameron crowe's ever gonna get I feel probably like. yeah yeah so we have this you know peeing this ode to like american exceptionalism and the importance of sports and we get to see this montage mm-hmm. sequence of all of these kids <laughs> variously awful children right that's gonna sure, help sure. jonathan yeah. lipnicki stand out later <laughs> in the film what do you think of the i don't know the political philosophy of this monologue of this turn right both the establishment of this american exceptionalism when he says in the opening monologue that's better this is america like, forget the rest of the world. We're yeah. talking about what matters, And he's just right? isn't like America still sets the tone for the rest yes. of the world or something. Yeah, Absolutely, weird. Right? Mm-hmm. So we, we're doing all of the classic mid-90s American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. But then we have the pivot. Then we have the crisis of conscience. Then we have this. Right. This I was going to say, I remember, too, that. Moral, whatever it is. Yeah. The, the film obviously is criticizing capitalism as just a machine that eats people and spits them back out again. Yep. And then. They keep beating the drum of healthcare, but you're going to have healthcare, right? I'm like, God, healthcare is still a joke 20 years later. Yeah. Come on, America. You're right. It doesn't critique the capitalist system, right? It doesn't It doesn't critique America. It just wants us to be nicer. It just wants us to be kinder. It wants us to yeah. voluntarily be kind well, at the yeah, expense of the bottom line. But it's that same line. idea that, you know, if you recycle more and use less water, then we'll save the earth, which is not true because you are one tiny person and it's the freaking corporations that are causing the extreme damage to the planet and it's nice to think that one person deciding to be nice is going to change the world i actually love how the film articulates that right at the end we have those two moments because we have uh the guy who's standing next to jay moore i'm assuming by the way that most of the people who are playing athletes in this film are real athletes and i'm just not recognizing yeah that's that who that is cool awesome (laughs) i wasn't in this country in the 1990s okay and barely care about professional football now. That's all right. <laughs> so he has that line right at the end. Why don't we have that kind of relationship? Mm-hmm. Which is super cute and a, a nice comedic beat with Jay Moore. And then yeah. we have the pickup later when Jerry's introduced to the other guy who who sees the value in what he's doing with Rod. And I, I like that it's this ripple. Yeah. I like the idea that it's we haven't changed the industry. We're not right. going to change the industry. But good people will find each other. Yes. Yeah. And maybe that's what it's about. Maybe maybe people who like choose that. to do it differently can elevate their corner of the industry right? Mm. which seems to be something that is pretty important to Cameron Crowe as a writer and a director sure. in Hollywood I don't know yeah yeah I like that but you're right in that it's not an indictment of the system as a whole as we can see from you know, right. the jokes about healthcare and we need a better office and we need you know yeah yeah it's still the mechanics of, of business mm-hmm. so Jerry has his long dark night of the soul in Miami sure. writes his manifesto gets it duplicated puts it in everyone's pigeonholes <laughs> and then just to like highlight the absent structure of this film, just then recants. Doesn't go to okay, no, go no, ahead. no. The the beat there is he calls up the front desk to be like, "Hey, did you send those? They've all gone out." Okay, like he immediately comes to his senses. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, that was an interesting. It was a little bit hard to read that because at first I wasn't sure because it's late at this point, right? It's like noon. He slept yeah, in. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that he was expecting to have heard from people. 
and did not. So he was checking to see, hey, did people get those? Yes, no, I don't know. Oh, that's so interesting. So I just had this apprehension of like, how was this received? I assumed I'd wake up to a full inbox of emails and you phone know. calls saying high five, and yet it's crickets. Now should I be embarrassed? You know, that's really interesting. I didn't read it that way, but I, I don't can't think it refute really matters, it at all. Either I way, think it's, yeah. Well, I think it does because my reading is is just way less coherent and way oh, less consistent. Yeah. And I don't because like it has him recanting, him zigzagging a little bit. Yeah. Right? But certainly we get the moment when he walks down into the foyer and everyone applauds, but we also get that little bittersweet sting yeah, at the end, which yeah. works kind of nicely, it I does. think. On the plane back home, we are introduced to Dorothy and Ray. Love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love everything that is happening here. What do you think about Jerry charming the girl that he's sitting next to by telling her this story about his engagement? I think it's cute. Just it's, being yeah. this perfect paragon of a romantic comedy leading man. <laughs> Pretty great. Uh, I like the story. Uh, I like how it automatically puts us in his corner, not against this fiance, but we like realize, oh, this is not perfect. Like you are not in a, one of the things I kind of like about Sleepless in Seattle is that when Meg Ryan's character is with Walter, who's with uh, Bill Pullman, that he's a sweet, nice, good guy. Like he's just, he's just not the one, but having the extra friction of this woman being maybe just a little bit of an asshole and him having a little bit of an asshole inside also, but he's trying to pivot away from that yeah. and she's trying to hold him to it. No, stay here and be an asshole with me. Exactly. It's kind of nice. She's kind of a jerk to him, but he's yeah. also clearly being a baby about it. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm not going to propose to you then. That's fine. <laughs> I got to tell you, one of my favorite and, and one of the most subtle jokes in the entire film happens mm-hmm. right here. So they go back to the hotel and the hotel thinks that they're going to be engaged. So yeah. they have the mariachi band play Here Comes the Bride and you hear very quietly the woman in the seat next to them say, oh, I love that song. <laughs> That's so weird. No human no, you being don't. would ever say what? that. Because she's just obviously so like charmed and caught up in this story. <laughs> so charmed by Dumb. Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise. <laughs> They played Here Comes the Bride. Oh, I love that song. (laughs) We cut out immediately to, God, this film moves so fast. We cut out immediately to the airport. We have Ray going missing and being on the carousel for some reason. But really, Mm -hmm. it's so that Jerry and Dorothy can not have a meet cute because they already know one another. And I absolutely I love, love that. that he knows, he knows her, her name. Knows her full name. Dorothy knows Boyd her from cubicle accounting. And yeah, the poster that she has that's up. That's right. It's yes. so good. He has like such a mastery of the details. And you see there why, why he is good so at good job. at his job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you get to see too Herbie just a little starry eyed. And we yep. understand that it's not just when she's listening in on their conversation on the plane. It's not just that he's this perfect romantic comedy leading man. Mm-hmm. It's that she knows him and knows what he's done this this right. optimism is a revolutionary act right she oh, is bringing in the political line. philosophy here yes. so hard yes. i love it yeah so you recognize and you're convinced by his inspirational power over her that, that she is really genuinely moved by this manifesto yes uh that's a weird way to put it power over her i don't like so much but yes <laughs> oh yeah no okay i see that <laughs> that's okay that that. yeah okay <laughs> You believe in the moment that she has been inspired by him. Yes, yes absolutely. Okay. And, and by yes. his philosophy yes. more even than his personhood. Yes. Right. And to me, the sparkle in her eyes is 80% philosophy, 20% also he's cute, though. Yeah. What do you think of this very abrupt and possibly jarring cut to sure. the very enthusiastic, this very boisterous sex with Avery? It's fun in that it shows like the very sharp contrast between their two lives. Like this is a woman who is raising a five-year-old boy who lives with her sister. And this is a high-powered, you know, 
what is it? What she's sports. in promotions of some sort. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, sports yeah. promotions. Yeah. Sports promotions, exactly. And and he's a sports agent, and they've got this modern apartment that they're just you know no clothes fucking in and no clothes, no kids. Good. Like that's the crucial yeah, thing, right? Like, we don't yeah. have to think about anyone else, right? No one is going to walk out no looking neighbors, for a glass of water. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. I think the reason that I am as warm as I am on Kelly Preston in this film is the line here that she gets, which is so just goddamn brilliantly. This is the thing about Cameron Crowe, right? Uh-huh. He is, I think, a very skilled writer, but he does have his lapses. He he mm-hmm. overwrites. He will falter. He's not as consistent as like the real heavy hitters of the form. I think mm-hmm. he's no Aaron Sorkin, but he has a brilliant James L. Brookian ability to just craft this line that feels crafted, but is so well written that you don't care. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not naturalistic in any way. This line that she has here. Do you remember this? If you ever want me to be with another woman for you, I do it. It's not something I'm interested in once. Yeah, it seemed normal, but it was just a phase, a college thing like Torn Levi's or law school for you. Oh, my God. There's a lot happening there. Oh, my God. I that is. I'm so impressed by that. And you clearly aren't. And I'm I a don't love it. Bewildered by it. What <laughs> no, is it that you don't just, love about it? It just feels like. I don't know. It's 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 the bisexual tropes in it, I suppose, or or like the not quite phobia, but like bisexuality as a phase, and also the fact that he seems icked out by it because later he's like, uh, maybe we don't tell each other everything, and I didn't like that. Okay, I can see that. Law school, funny. Yeah, I, I think I'm not reading the. Uh, it, it's her like internal contradiction and hypocrisy right coupled with her complete like lack of tact that sure. she's one of these people who disguises a lack of tact and consideration as brutal honesty we have right. that conversation yeah later and he in. says i think you added the brutal <laughs> yeah. which you can believe yeah you can absolutely believe it. yeah it's it's that lack of self-awareness coupled with everything being expressed mm. in that contradictory fashion i just i love it. yeah no i can definitely see it playing with yeah awful bisexual yeah. erasure tropes but mm. yeah Still, I think, charmed me very much in the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. We go to the bachelor party. We have the weird little beat with Eric Stoltz. I don't know why he's the in this film. The bachelor party but... is so weird. How did you track down all of these ex-girlfriends or people that he just slept with? And why did they agree to sit down in front of a camera and talk about him? I was, was thinking this like about a this thing too. that was happening for bachelor parties? I can't imagine. Surely not. But I think that the joke that we get at the very beginning of this weird video montage about sure. them having his little black book, I think is true. I think they got his little black book. And just called and just people call randomly, people? which is weird. That is weird and invasive and terrible. And then she blowtorches the little black book, yeah. which is also like, I mean, okay, sure. I don't know. Whole sequence was weird to me. The notion of a little black book, I think, it is all, already maybe outdated that's the by thing. 1996. It's just so outdated. So yeah. yeah. This this is very like all the guys with cigars. Like it's it's exactly. just yeah, you need the girl to jump out of the cake. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. And we don't really need this to like motivate no. his emotional crisis. He's already having an emotional crisis about authenticity and real connection real human connection Mm -hmm. so we can fold in his disconnection from his fiance and like his overall concerns about intimacy right Mm -hmm. that he doesn't want to be fully available to someone that he doesn't want to be fully connected now yeah and dorothy says that she saw the bachelor party video (laughs) much much later in the film she says that she that she had watched it many times i don't know i don't know i don't understand it feels very earnest in that moment but is she just like I, I maybe we can fill in. Maybe we can write a little fan fiction here, right? Where she is just <laughs> she's going to this tape over, and she's heard about it because everyone mm. in the office is at this bachelor party. Well, she might even true, be there for all we know. But she watches this video over and over and over to like 
inculcate in herself a sense of distance from this man who cannot be trusted, who will not be emotionally intimate with her, no matter how present and available he seems to be in her real life. That she's watching this as a way of inoculating herself mm. against his charms. All these women have know. gone down exactly she, the, the same road that, that I'm going down it. with this yeah. man right now. No, and then ultimately, of course, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, and the way that she uses it, though, is like as a means of manipulating him to c come out to dinner with her. Yeah. I like that theory, but I don't think it's supported by the text. <gasps> this text? This rock-solid text? <laughs> it's just a wonderland where the imagination can do whatever it wants. <laughs> In quick succession, we get the introduction to uh, Marcy, to Regina King, who is just fucking brilliant and never she puts is. a foot wrong in this film mm -hmm. just exceptional and and her awful awful son whose name i did not write down because he's a bad kid tyson tyson tyson's okay. not so terrible every shot we get of tyson is tyson herring around a restaurant or kicking things or breaking he things sometimes or, does a fit it's yeah true. it's true you're right okay. do we get a good scene of tyson i guess i'm thinking of him watching his dad on tv giving him the kiss on the cheek where and he gets then... told off for swearing by his mom <laughs> he says mofo He's five years old. All right. Okay. I think that's maybe across the line. I don't know. I don't, we don't need to you know, air our laundry vis-a-vis -vis parenting on this podcast. <laughs> it's but. true. If one of the boys had mofo, they would... Okay, you're right. That would be so weird. <laughs> it wouldn't be so weird. We would not be able to parent. That would just, We would be so shook by that. Where did you even... What? Yeah. Oh. Have you been hanging out with Quentin Tarantino again? <laughs> and then, as if this film could accelerate the pace any further, we go out for lunch with Jay Moore. Jerry is sure. fired, and then we race back to the office because apparently in his settlement package is oh, and you can continue and you can using your office until the end of the day. day. Yeah, that's usually <laughs> not how this works. But drag okay. your clients away yeah. from our business. <laughs> Very Definitely strange. not how this works. Yes. I'm sure, but it is great seeing yeah. him bounce back and forth from phone call to phone call. We've got Jay Moore in the other room doing yep. exactly the same thing. It's so predatory and desperate. You yeah. know, contrasted the one with the Jay other. Jay Moore has that great but terrible really line. Fantastic. It's not show friends. It's show, show business. <laughs> like, okay, so listen. that's bad crow, right? When I'm because I've I only pulled like the ones that, that are, because of the because are we of the just character completely who got inverted it? here on I what guess. we like about Cameron Crowe's writing. Maybe we are. <laughs> we get this fantastic beat with uh, Kathy Sanders, who's one of the uh, oh, yeah. kids who's introduced at the beginning, who gets so upset on the phone and then has the call waiting, and we get the mm -hmm. it's still me. It, that's I think a very funny joke. Did you recognize her? Uh, she is in Grey's Anatomy and she, she has to in get, Grey's Anatomy. yeah, she blushes whenever she Patrick blushes Dempsey comes exactly in the room. exactly right. Yeah. Angela Gothels is her name and she plays, yeah, the blushing girl because she has a crush on Derek Shepard in the second season of Grey's Anatomy. I think that joke is so funny. I think that's, yeah, it works for <laughs> <Okay>. me anyway. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> then finally, 25 minutes in, we get the introduction of Cuba Gooding Jr. We get the introduction of Rod. It is mm -hmm. just, I mean... It's a centerpiece. It's a firecracker it performance. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning and and pushes Cruz, I think, so far out of his comfort zone yes. as an actor, as a performer. I've never seen anything like this from Cruz. I don't think I ever will again. Yeah, never seen it. it, yeah. it I'll be looking for it. But it's so brilliant. It's so funny. It's so all in. And I don't know. There's something about seeing him just like completely unhinged that, I don't know, it puts me on side. Yeah. Yeah. And the brilliant cutaways that we get through this entire sequence too, to his phone as light by light, the little lines the are being dropped. Stop. Yeah. So his desperation is only increasing yep. as he's spending all of this time listening to this asshole <laughs> tell him what he needs. Yeah. Ah, so, so good. It's great. And then right at the end, the end of the phone call, the music cuts out. We cut to total silence. 
that's the editing that I'm talking about. Mm. That's the, the, the masterful stroke sure. that can punctuate a scene. And we don't always do that. There are a couple moments later where we have really awkward fades yeah. at the end of a scene, which, guys, come on, this is a movie <laughs> and it's 1996. <laughs> but this moment, I think, is is just spectacular. Yeah. It's coupled with the moment when he and Renny Zellweger finally get in the elevator and leave. And all at yes. once, all the sound of the office comes back up. We go from dead uh-huh. silence to and the phone starts, starts ringing. And, every, again, yeah. and it's like these two people were never there. So, so good. Brilliant. With Rod secured, Jerry leaves the office. He makes this final appeal to decency, to manners, but no one takes him up on his offer except Dorothy, of course. Mm -hmm. Really, really sweet. We get the beat in the elevator. We get the introduction of You Complete Me, which is a lot to do in that moment, I think. And then, yeah, we're out to the women's group and we're out to Bonnie Hunt. We introduce Mm -hmm. uh, Laurel. It's so fast. I guess, theoretically, this would be the end of the first act. This is like the 35 to 40 minute mark. This would kind Mm -hmm. of be where the first act would fall. But yeah, it's not at all clear. From there, we get the cutout to, we first have a very brief scene with Avery, who is trying to motivate Jerry. And then we get Bo Bridges. We get the fantastic Bo Bridges and the less consistently fantastic Jerry O'Connell, but very good in this movie, Jerry O'Connell as Cush and Cruz doing his thing. You like this? I do like it. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm not a huge Jerry O'Connell fan. I think giving him the guitar and having him sing stupid songs is not my favorite bit, but. Nor mine. Yeah. Yeah. But I love Bo Bridges. Perfect casting. Yes. Except I don't believe that Bo Bridges would break his word. (laughs) And you know, that's the hard part, right? Like the casting is too good up front. What helps is that that stupid Team Cushman hat yeah. kind of reminds me of a Trump hat. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. okay. oh, you're that guy. Oh, you're that no, guy. No, that's also true because at the end of that, the second beat that we get with Bo Bridges, he has that you've been spending all your time with that black fella. Yeah, exactly. Like, ah, shit. Yep. You're that guy? You're that guy. Gross. You're Bo Bridges. <laughs> you yeah. can't be that guy. But that's okay because that I think that makes it better. If he looked like an asshole the whole time, we would be like, what are you doing? How are you sure. even, you know, and we need to at least believe. Yeah. I, I love when McGuire says, I'm still sort of moved by your whole, <laughs> my word is stronger than oak thing. I'm like, same. Yeah. That guilt trip that he's putting on it, it's so it's good. good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. And those two scenes are actually very close together. They're only really separated. We get the driving sequence that we talked about before with him yeah. trying to find the perfect song on the radio and then free falling because it's a Cameron Crowe movie. So you're so going to have the perfect song mm-hmm. on the radio. We have the, uh, the trivia scene that we discussed earlier, the dropping him off at the airport sequence where... For some reason, Dorothy looks very sad because this completely average dude is saying goodbye to his completely average child and incredibly hot Hollywood wife. That was really weird. Really weird just, casting. Just a casting misfire. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of this joke where uh, Rod gets mistaken for Hootie? Hootie. Great joke. Still funny. It's a 1996 era joke. For Still sure. funny. It's a good to joke. To me, also, knowing who Hootie is. I went and looked up what Darius Rucker looked like back in 1996, just to like really yep. cement it. And like, I didn't know, right? Obviously, uh-huh. I listened to a Cracked Review the same as everyone did back in 1996. Sure. And it really is quite uncanny. Yeah. They really did look alike. Uh-huh. And this is where we get the second beat with uh, with Kush and with his dad. And the weird mm-hmm. shell game to get Jerry on the phone so that he can hear Sugar confess. Yeah, I'm okay with it. That worked yeah, pretty well. It, it's especially because I, I thought Cruz was perfect in that performance where he's still smiling but like the light goes out of his eyes yeah how did you do that how did you do that amazing it it is genuinely singular and then Mm -hmm. you're right when he's then talking with bill bridges and and he's giving this like it's cordial but it's forced but it's hurt Yes. But it's also like, I'm trying to convince you. Like, I'm trying to give yes, you the chance can, to be the better he person he still here. wants to, like, save this. Yeah. Still we believes can, that he can. You can still do it. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, I mean, 
it's undeniable that he deserved at least the nomination for the Academy Award for this yeah. year, I think. It's it's such a spectacular performance. Mm-hmm. This is when we get the Jerry Avery breakup scene, complete with cartoon sound effects right there at the end. Then Rod and Jerry fly home on the plane as Jerry is really beginning to spiral at this point. This yeah. is when he's deep in his sunglasses because he's got the black eye <laughs> and he's like really at his lowest ebb. It's pretty good. Yeah. He gets drunk and goes to visit Dorothy. And mm-hmm. this is the point, I think, that the, the film is starting to lose its energy just a little bit. We are kind of circling the same emotional points Mm-hmm. two or three times in succession rather than moving as quickly sure. as we were right at the beginning of the film. And maybe we couldn't have maintained that pace through the mm-hmm. entire film, but we are certainly slowing down and losing our focus. It's softening up just yeah. a little yeah. bit for okay. me as we get to this point. But that said, this is still the sequence with Ray on the yeah. couch, which is so good. <laughs> what do you think of the brilliant moment in the kitchen when uh, they turn around and, and Laurel yes. walks into Dorothy with the plate and then has the bend over, yeah. takes the plate away? <laughs> It's still, still edible. edible. Change your shirt. <laughs> it's perfect. They're, Bonnie Hunt. I oh love them God. as sisters, and Bonnie Hunt is, I just think, pitch perfect. I don't Absolutely. love all of the lines they give each other, like I said. However, I yeah, think politicizing that, those aspects yeah. of the relationship and talking in terms of should, like talking in terms of the talking points that we, you know, besiege single parents with in particular. Yes. That stuff single sucks. women. Single women. You're yes. absolutely right, in particular. Mm-hmm. But the moments when they are just sisters yeah. is so great. And we managed to do it. all of it without compromising laurel one bit mm-hmm. she shows up disapproving sister oh okay nice to meet you like, yeah right from the jump we know who she is and she stays there for the whole thing yeah and is even on their enough. wedding night if it's you fancy. fuck this up i'll kill you oh yeah. my god yeah just brilliant glad yeah. we had this talk great <laughs> and that's the other thing right is him just not giving an inch i love yeah it's kind of out of character with the story that he tells about his uh, engagement to avery right at the beginning on the plane right mm. where, where he's such a baby about it he takes his hits yeah. with dorothy with incredible good grace. Yes, you're right. I like that about Just him. Just really demonstrates that he's that he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. As we said, the moment with Ray, you said fuck, is really quite adorable. Then mm-hmm. Ray goes off to bed and Dorothy <laughs> and Jerry get a little close on the couch. And then there's the kiss. The this super awkward like desperation. boob squeeze kiss is very nicely done. I mean, wow. That's a yeah. bold strategy. It is. I, I'm going to go for the boob. Even before we have kissed. Like, yeah. even, you know, it's, and it's then kind of... sorry about the hand. <laughs> like, you know that moment where you're not embarrassed yet, but you can sense tomorrow's embarrassment? All That's so all well very written. well written. And I yep. love, yeah, we just and put who hasn't been there? on the table. We have a working relationship. You yeah. are my boss. This is not cool. And he's like, oh, you just called me your boss. Yeah. I'm the worst. Oh, I'm so gross. This, this was all good. All of this yeah. worked for me. And she's like, well, I might not sue. Like, <laughs> It's good. From here, we start what is a recurring beat of Jerry telling Rod that he has to just be nicer and just, which is obviously incredibly politically loaded. Like yes, mm-hmm. the the racialism of yes. of this entire discourse through the film, I think, is mm-hmm. incredibly challenging. And I love that we're not going to address it at all. Really, like the, the racial aspect of it. I think Tidwell addresses it. I think I think that he says, you know, you're telling me to dance. I'm not going to dance for you. Like that to me is calling out like the racial side of this argument like you can't tell me to play nice with people to entertain people like to me i see that as like him pointing to this you know like male entertainers and sports figures as like a minstrel show like shut the fuck up and get out of here i mean i I think you've got to want that a little bit right there i think it's compatible with that reading but it doesn't go the extra distance to like assure me of that Hmm. what we get from regina king so much later right yeah you are a strong capable black man that is like yeah, yeah that that is 
that is much more forceful mm -hmm. and much more much more true. But of course, we can't really rationalize it because ultimately, he's going to show this softer side at the end. Like, like he actually is going to be transformed by Jerry's influence to yes. some degree or another, mm -hmm. right? So we have to not make this about being black. We have to make it about you are an asshole, regardless of your color, which is a very mm -hmm. loaded thing to try and do, particularly right. in 1996. Yeah. But this is the help me help you, another line help that has just entered the language yeah. and feels so fresh here, right? It really yep. does feel as though Cruz finds it in that yeah. moment that it's it's he's working towards it, which is mm -hmm. another thing that Cameron Crowe has a great facility with, I think, is having people, you know, not declaim not deliver oratory but rather find what it is that they're trying to say in the moment in a very mm -hmm. circuitous way that's actually a very you know james albrook's inspired thing too i think cool if you like the way that dialogue works in this film dear listener at home and you haven't seen any of james albrook's movies go see them <laughs> because they're this <laughs> we get the scene with jerry apologizing to dorothy they agree to focus on work of course and then immediately agree to go out to dinner yep this is where we get your favorite line that's more than a dress. That's an Audrey Hepburn movie. We have The Hug with Ray, which is so good. Incredibly loaded. So special. And Ray kissing Jerry on the cheek, uh -huh. which is just so lovely. And you see it all in, in Dorothy's face, too. Yeah. It's just and you also see there. Laurel in her, yeah. oh shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh dear, she says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They lovely. go to the Mexican restaurant. And, and this is the sequence we get first, I guess, when they walk out. Laurel lingers with Dorothy for just a moment mm -hmm. and Jerry goes on just ahead. And then when Dorothy catches up, we get that gorgeous shot of the two of them standing on opposite sides mm -hmm. of the road. Just That's the Kai Skura that you were talking about, so right? The, almost in uh -huh. silhouette. Like, mm -hmm. so good. Then we transition to the Mexican restaurant. And this is where I'm talking about the editing being a bit soft because we don't button this scene no. at all. Yeah. We have a very brief conversation. Dorothy goes off to call yeah, Ray. This is a weird hard cut. The mariachi band comes back. Yeah. And then we just fade out and pick up back at the yeah, front door again. Yeah, she's like, watching him. She's got like her little handbag right in front of her mouth. She's so yeah. charmed. And then just boom, date over. Yeah, that yeah, didn't odd. need to happen, I guess. we could, mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter because we cut to the great the, porch scene. The hottest scene in this it's film. So good. Yeah. Uh, takes off her little cardigan. Shut up. Takes off her little cardigan. Great. Uh, All-time great shoulders and clavicle, too. Are we supposed to read it as accidentally, oh, accidentally. pulling yeah. the yeah. halter down? Which I like also... because it means that, you know, her one, like, adult dress was a cheap dress because she saw yes. it on clearance. And she was like, you know what? Maybe one day I'll have a reason to wear this $8 dress. So she grabbed it. I can yeah. buy that. It's really good. And also the way they both laugh when it breaks like that. Yeah. I like it. it. It is. It's so intimate. It's so mm -hmm. casual. It's so naturalistic. But it's also so conscious and deliberate. And we are... As I said, you know, we're moving around each other emotionally and physically mm -hmm. in this great, we shouldn't, but we should, but we want to, yeah. but we shouldn't, but we're going to. And yeah, just constantly checking in with each other mm -hmm. like that. So strong. I could have lived without Chad the Nanny. Chad the Nanny period, is, is weird. Thought. Yeah, yeah, uh, true. I definitely could have lived without the preoccupation with jazz, which is introduced here in the middle of the film. <laughs> I thought I will it was funny. Here on out, be a What is beat. this music? I thought was funny. Well, you know what, what is I this like. Music is a I just beat. like yeah. that they laugh together. When sure. she opens the door and he's doing the, and he does look very good. And she just <laughs> she shuts the door, door. <laughs> to take a breath, opens it again, and he's just laughing. And he's full on Tom Cruise, like double <laughs> finger guns at her. Yes. Yeah. Really and then moment. they both just are laughing together and going to bed laughing is really lovely. Laurel yeah. hearing her sister laugh from the other room, not hearing the bed thumping up against the nope. wall, which so nope. many other people would do, but that they're laughing together. That's a sound of delight. Yeah. yeah. That's and wonderful. she's so inscrutable in that moment too, mm -hmm. shadowed in the kitchen. So shadowed. Who knows? Such a great yep. moment. Yeah. yeah. 
in the morning, we get one of those scenes that I was talking about, about Jerry taking his hits, right? Because this is Dorothy confessing yeah. everything to Laurel in the kitchen. Not confessing <laughs> yeah. everything to Laurel in the kitchen, but confessing I mean, enough. Yeah. And certainly confessing her love. I love him. I love him. I've always, uh, I love Ray him. coming so out. Hi, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> the look on everyone's face. Yep. And he comes it's in. Per- it's just he's so perfect owning his space in that moment yeah in a respectful way like he's not taking space from anyone but he's he's showing up in a way he shows up that's exactly right kisses her gently and says good morning darling sits down and has apple jacks and chats with ray like i pours ray a pound and a half of apple jacks i mean that's how kids like to eat a bowl of apple jacks that weighs more than that kid's head (laughs) which remind me how much the human head weighs yeah yeah We get the offer from Arizona comes in and it's so much smaller than they anticipated. Dorothy brilliantly stands up in favor of idealism and optimism, demonstrating that she really did like internalize that manifesto, that it really is like speaking to her, which I absolutely love. And again, Mm -hmm. say it again, Regina King, unstoppable, fantastic. Marcy, you are the shit. Marcy, you are the the shit. shit. Absolutely. Uh I would wear a t-shirt that said that on it if it wasn't very hard for people to parse. (laughs) Jerry and Rod leave the commercial set where they're doing, what is it, Camel Chevrolet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just, yeah. We Weird. Yeah. mentioned it earlier. It's this excellent, long technical tracking shot mm. down through the, the fringes of the set, which is so lovely. The dialogue about being a single parent and about this yeah. interaction, as well as the intimacy between, the growing intimacy between these two men, so great. And then, yeah, yeah, just shoplift the booty is the worst line. It's the worst thing. It's the worst it's thing. It's the worst thing. Yeah. I can't find it online attested anywhere prior to this film. It feels as though it couldn't possibly have come from this film. Is that a thing that Cameron Crowe just wrote? I don't know. Like he I made up Quan for coin or whatever. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It's not very, good. very, yeah. Mm. Anyway, Dorothy takes the job in San Diego, and there's the emotional goodbye with Ray, who should definitely not be sitting in the front seat of that U-Haul truck. Definitely. Not even a booster no, seat. No, no, no. You're so right. Not even yeah. a nothing. Against Are you kidding? The law. That boy no, no, is no. five years old, and a small five. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-uh. A small, adorable, Thank fragile you. five. Our parenting coming out here. <laughs> Bare minimum, a booster seat. You need like a yes, full, like five-point child point harness. harness. <laughs> And then naturally Jerry proposes marriage and wow, this film takes a left turn, doesn't it? I think this is so smart. I think this is the genius of this film. Really? You know what it reminds me of? Because we're watching them get together. We're we're so excited. We just had this great, the port scene was so hot. We just did the Apple Jacks. Like it's all so perfect. <laughs> then we get like the, them being on the same side idealistically while we're in the room with Marcy and Rod. And then we see Marcy and Rod do, remember when, when Marcy says to him like, they don't define our worth. We do that. We yeah. do that for each other yeah. and we'll stay afloat. And the way that you see both of these other two characters wanting that for themselves and also wanting it together but not being sure yet. You know, yeah. she's more sure than he is definitely. But this idea that he is like reaching for more than he's ready, that he's moving yeah. before he is ready. She already is, but she must already know at least at some level, that this is going too fast. And then to have these characters that we've been watching get together and get married and our hearts sink, Yeah, it reminds me of Psycho. This is going to sound insane. But you know how in Psycho you're watching the movie and you're watching the movie and he puts the body into the car and he shoves the car into the swamp and it starts to sink and it starts to sink and then it stops for a little while and you're like... (gasps) (laughs) Oh, shit, I'm on the side of the murderer. And it's like this amazing, how did the director do this? I feel the same way where you're like, I'm watching their wedding and I'm sad in my heart. 
how did you do this? How dare? I want them together. Yeah, yeah I, I hear you. And I do think that applying the pressure of marriage to their relationship does have a different oh, yeah. cadence. And the way it changes the dynamic. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about it. I'm particularly not sure about it because of the way that we handle it, where we jump out hard cut to the wedding, right? And we hard cut to Cuba Gooding Jr. singing, which is just not, I think, a funny joke. We have the same mariachi band from the place down the street, oh, I guess, which weird. is also very weird. I didn't notice that. And yeah. then whoever is shooting this wedding has edited the tape together so well that we can watch it that same night. Because, you know, oh, after you've been see, to a wedding, no, 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 you want to no. sit around and watch the tape of the wedding. This you were just is at. 1996. This is just somebody had the camcorder rolling and then you take out the VHS tape and you put it in and you, you, you know, you set the little thing inside. This is just all of it unedited, which I is why you get that, that awful there are part. That edits in that film as we're watching it on TV. But you might be right. But you're right. Yeah. And then it's just this awful somber look on Tom Cruise's face. It's not even somber. It's stressed the hell yeah. out. Yeah. It's, that is that is a stressed man. Yeah. Which is interesting because like I think you could read that. that. That's one of his defining characteristics, right? Is that he just feels responsible. And now his responsibilities are going up even further. Now, now he's not just her boss, not just her boyfriend, but like her husband too. Is that how you take it? It's not. Okay. But I think that it could be true. Yeah, I think it is a part of it. I, I I think he knows that he's in over his head, and and a part of it is that. Yeah. See, I I like the fact that we don't ever leverage Ray as a part of the pressure on him. That he's actually very comfortable having this like relationship with mm -hmm. Ray that just works. That they just like immediately get each other and resonate yeah. in a really great way, and that it is not so much the being married or the domesticity of it all as it is the fear of emotional intimacy, right? It, it's the same thing mm -hmm. that we've been tracking all the way from the beginning of the film, although we have been tracking it very inconsistently. Yeah, yeah. And here we're attempting to connect it to his aspiration as a man, right? Mm. It's connected almost philosophically to his manifesto. Like, what if people were just better? What if we were yeah. just more open? What if I was better? What if we connected sure. with the people around us genuinely instead of seeing other people as tools that we can use or symbols right. of our status or you know however he's interpreting his business relationships at that point we're, we're dovetailing those things together in a way that i like but but in a way that leaves him here in a really bad position in, mm. in a way that i don't know I, I feel that the proposal was a mistake that we understand that the proposal was a mistake and though we want these people to be together like first go to therapy yeah Sure. Everybody in every mm -hmm. romantic relationship. First, go to therapy. <laughs> you need it. I promise. I promise. It's 2024. <laughs> I promise you need it. Yeah. And then you can start creating relationships with other people mm. in, in a purposeful way. And, and if there is a weakness to this film, it is exactly that, right? He gets a moment of revelation that transforms him that is not naturalistic. It is not emotionally real, I sure. think for a, a real person in the real world, right? He gets a, he gets an Ebenezer Scrooge revelation right yeah. at the end of this yeah. movie. And it's a rom-com, so we can go with it because people do transform mm. epiphanically, <laughs> revelatorily uh, in romantic comedies. So I think that's okay. But we do lose, I think, a little bit of the emotional realism of, of what mm. is a very sophisticated and interesting character, right? Jerry, as I we meet so. him, yeah. is a complicated guy. Mm. And we explore his relationship with the world, but we don't yeah. really delve into his relationship with women we don't delve into this intimacy issue that he has yeah and and that is maybe why ultimately dorothy doesn't work for me as much as i want her to because even when he does finally come back and it's you complete me 
maybe that's not so good. <laughs> you know, like maybe, no. maybe this idea is like, I had a great day and I wanted my wife, I'm looking for my wife to celebrate with. Like, what does that have to do with no, Dorothy? But that's though? the thing. That's the brilliance of you had me at hello is that it doesn't matter what he says in that scene. It's the action that he takes. This is a recapitulation of the earlier scene with Ray. You showed up. You You came. You did it. Like, this is a film that is extremely skeptical of speech. It's extremely skeptical of, like, words and promises, right? This is also Mm -hmm. echoing Bo Bridges. That's good. What we learn in this film is people can be judged by what they do. And not what they say. By their actual action Mm. and not by the promises that they make to get there. He That's comes good. back. He when he says hello when he walks in, literally she means that. It's not yeah. oh I would be here for you no matter what. It's you did the thing. You came yeah. here. It doesn't matter what you say now. Mm. And you're right. You complete me is codependent. Don't complete <laughs> people. You guys, you should be two people. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I love the 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 very subtle emphasis that we put on action over promises, over dialogue, yeah. over over the words that we say, you know? Yeah. I think that's very good. So after this, as if things aren't bad enough for Jerry, we get this scene where Rod confronts Jerry about the state of his marriage. Mm -hmm. And Jerry, you know, speaks truth to power, (laughs) telling him that he's just an asshole and (laughs) that he needs to stop being an asshole if he really wants to have the career. That he plays with his head and not with his heart. That he's not investing himself fully in the game. Why did you get started playing football, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's good and it's powerful. And I like the way that we are connecting things, both strands of the storyline, back to, you know, passion and intensity and authenticity mm. really that, that that's really what it's about it's not about worrying about what you get or what you're owed or who did what to whom it's about why are you here why are you doing this thing yeah that, connecting back to that essentialism i think is strong there marcy has her baby which is fantastic i love that sequence <laughs> where they're in the diner where they're just kissing up on each other it's so, so good cute. and so yeah. sweet dorothy and jerry try to navigate their marriage and their feelings for each other and she says that she took advantage of him that this is her fault which nope right it's not her fault that they're in right. this position. No. She did not in any way take advantage of him here. I mean, she did take take advantage of him at his low point when, you know, she said, oh, I know you. And what I know is that you need to be alone, 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 alone. <laughs> in the most Renee Zellweger line right. in the entire yeah. movie. Yeah, that and he's like, hey, do you want to go to dinner? Weird. Yeah, I know a great place. Let me put this dress on. Like she, she takes advantage. Oh, I don't think that's taking advantage. He's also navigating that back and forth, too. They, they are caught in this contradiction together, aren't they? Yeah. I would yeah. also, you know. But she's she is taking responsibility for her side of things, not for the whole thing, I don't think. She is she literally says it's all my fault. <laughs> like uh, she's literally framing herself as the architect of their okay. displeasure right now. It's I it's, think she's doing that in a good person way and not in a way where I ag- agree and the script agrees that she is the bad person. Yeah, maybe. The thing of it is this, right? That that not all of this sequence works because mm-hmm. not all of the mechanisms of their relationship are either completely well-formed or right. completely unearthed here. But overall, we've got a romantic conflict that is a real conflict. We've got a romantic yeah. conflict in a major motion picture, in a major romantic comedy that is a real conflict that yeah. is about the space between two people that is not a misunderstanding or a lie or mm-hmm. any kind of, you know arbitrary thing this is yeah two people really figuring out how and if they fit together and that's enormously refreshing and compelling i think Mm -hmm. it's real drama here at the heart of the story and though we don't completely architect it and though we don't completely resolve it we kind of have to trust to the pixie dust of the magical ending here it still works for me as a study of a relationship that is just about two people figuring each other out yeah yeah 
And from there, we're pretty fast into the finale. Jerry goes to see Rod play. Rod is getting hit again and again and again through the course of this game. He makes the fantastic catch. I don't know if that's actually... I don't know how he did that, but it was so cool. Yeah, so terrific. And so dangerous looking. Oh, God. And then is knocked out and everyone Mm -hmm. is terrified and Marcy's on the phone. And Mm -hmm. then it turns out that he's fine and he does an end zone dance because... He's that guy. <laughs> and the world loves him. Right? The world falls yeah. in love with him because I guess... I like that there's the call out. We're going to see a flag for this, but honestly, who cares? <laughs> that was really well delivered. <laughs> it's so fun watching this because, again, yeah, I don't know any of these people, none of the athletes, oh, none yeah. of the commentators or anything no, like Emmett that. No, Emmett Smith was there, Troy Aikman. Uh, it's so fun those seeing... Those are the two I definitely knew. The difference between the people who can just do it naturally in front of a camera and those who definitely cannot. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty lovely. This this moment of intimacy between these two men, I think, is just so great. It's so lovely to have this real friendship here at the heart of the story, too. I completely agree. Yeah. Is this the first movie that started talking about bromance? Oh, I don't even know if this movie started talking about bromance. It That's so like interesting. It felt like a real romance moment where they're both, like, teary-eyed and embracing after this. This is such an excellent example of... Mm. That masculine friendship is something that we depict so yeah. infrequently in our popular culture. Masculine tenderness and affection. Absolutely. Yeah. Both of them just like weeping openly, hugging right there yeah. in front of God and everybody and all these cameras. And, yeah. and, and then, everybody else being jealous of exactly, it. Exactly. For it to be presented as yeah. a desirable thing. Why don't we have a relationship like that? It's so good. Like, it's yeah. so, it is the antithesis of toxic masculinity. Yep. It really is. Quite surprising. So it works for you, Rod, kind of getting the celebrity that he wanted because he has opened himself up right we, we get like the physical embodiment of yeah. that on the field playing with his heart taking all these hits doing yes. you know and, and then even being his celebration playful too. when he celebrates Absolutely. yeah yeah enjoying himself again instead um, of just throwing a fit all the time yeah yeah and we get to see that symbolically of course metaphorically with the hug with jerry and like this, sure. this real emotional connection that's not about who owes what to whom or, mm. or who deserves what but it's just this real immediacy and intimacy yeah it's really satisfying right it, it might it. be the most satisfying emotional arc in the film i think no that's what i said earlier yeah, absolutely yeah. yeah this that's the part that got me yeah and from there of course thank god an actual bona fide tom cruise run tom cruise runs the airport it's a, a real that, rom-com run through the airport runs through the airport and then getting on a and plane and then flying home and then yes and then yeah we elide all of that thankfully that's and that's okay. yeah mm-hmm. then we get our our last speech, which I think yeah. we've kind of chewed over already, but you can't deny the emotional yeah. impact of it in the moment, right? No, definitely. I, I think it's lovely. I have one bone to pick, which is that uh, the woman, Alice, gives some outdated science and says that neural pathways are set. And I'm here to tell you, neuroplasticity is a thing and they are not. So there you hold go. out hope, folks, yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah, you can change. <laughs> you can always change. People you can, can always change. change. Yeah, and if people don't change, it's because they're stubborn, not because they can't. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So with our romantic plot resolved we kind at christmas time no less at christmas time no less mm-hmm. when's a better time to resolve a romantic subplot <laughs> then we move out to our epilogue we get yeah. rod being interviewed on tv and <laughs> crying when he gets the of news course. of his 10 million dollar contract with the cardinals back in arizona where it all began it's yeah it's really in a kind of cool outfit touching whatever fun. this like suit with no shirt it's wow. just cool he i don't know does it does look cool. pretty consistently yeah. great through the entire film <laughs> yeah and then we have uh, Jerry and Dorothy walking together in the park, and it turns out that Ray has a little cannon for an arm. Yeah, throws that baseball sure. right over the fence. Nice back to those throw, big kids. kid. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> silly. It's really cute. It's fun. And good movie. That's Jerry Maguire. That's Jerry Maguire. And now we have an impossible task in front of us because we Is have to impossible? put this on the list. It's. 
I think, extremely difficult. It's, it's going to be. It is going to be difficult because, on the one hand, mm-hmm. we have a film that we obviously love. Right? Yeah. We have had a great time talking about this film. There's mm-hmm. innumerable high points, innumerable influences and echoes all through pop culture. It's left a real footprint. Yeah. It's heartwarming. It's inspiring. But it is a kind of unformed shaggy dog story. It's too long. It doesn't have focus and purpose. Okay. But Mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind of giving the worst interpretation Uh, of it, right? Because we're contrasting it with this finely tuned machine. Yeah. We're contrasting it with a film that doesn't have an ounce of fat on it, that doesn't have a a wasted moment. We're talking, of course, about Top Top Gun. Gun. Mm -hmm. Because the real question is... Does Jerry Maguire go at the top of the list or is it second on the list? Yeah, that's the real question. Um, I will say that after watching Jerry Maguire, I felt more and better than I have felt after any of the Tom Cruise movies by a wide margin. That is worth a lot. I like Top Gun. I really do. And I know that it's not like a lot of women's movies. Like m- m- Many women feel that it is too masculine a film and they just like, nah, don't really love it. I am not one of those. I am one that love it. Full stop. I do think Jerry Maguire is better. I think it's better written. I think it's it explores relationships better. I think that everywhere that Top Gun like touches me emotionally, Jerry Maguire does also, and often better. I, 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 but it also gives you healthy masculinity and yeah. healthy resolutions to conflicts and relationships and the hope well, of think, growth think, and change. Yeah, I think Top Gun had healthy masculine relationships too, though. I think that Maverick and Goose were a great... Absolutely, Like, yes. they were excellent. But also, you know, the Iceman of it all. Also the Iceman of it all is there. Yeah, yeah, we don't have that. <laughs> and here. even then, like, we're externalizing, like, male relationships into mm-hmm. competition, right? right? And into right. adversarial relationships in a way that we resolutely don't here. There's That's there's true. no sense of that. Weirdly, for a film that, that turns into a real sports movie there for a bit at the yeah. end. Yeah, There's and no real sense of that competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am so interested in the symbolism of putting Jerry Maguire at the top of the list, both in recognition of the fact that it is a fantastic film, Mm -hmm. in recognition of the fact that this is unarguably one of the great Cruise performances, maybe the great Cruise performance. He's never been sexier. He's never been lighter on his feet. He wasn't as good as Maverick yet. He was too young. He was still green. I think that's a really fair point. The clash and contrast there, though, is kind of sad. I mentioned at the very end of last week's episode that Jerry Maguire is the road not taken. This is Mm, the alternate career for Cruise. In 1996, he does Mission Impossible, which will be the rest of his career. That's what he does. And Jerry Maguire, which he will not do again. We are not going to, right, not successfully anyway. God Mm. knows we're going to talk about Night and Day starring Cameron Diaz sometime (laughs) soon. But he's not going to do this again. And it's not going to be his future. And that's a real shame. Yeah. And that's a shame for the industry. It's a shame that we have to you know, in order to leverage the incredible financial risks that we're taking with these giant movies, we have to keep people safely pigeonholed. Yeah. We can't let people experiment the way that we once did. So I kind of like the symbolism, honestly, of it being right there at the top of the list yeah. as this is what we could have had, mm-hmm. as well as this is a fantastic film. Well, and just my personal favorite, I remember too that this list is subjective, that it is, you know, our list. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. If we put this at the top of the list, which I feel we're moving toward, I, spoilers I, for the listeners, <laughs> I feel like that's where it's going to end yeah. up. But do you think, are you confident that this will be at the top of the list for the rest of the run of this podcast? Like just gut feeling? Gut feeling, yeah. Really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know that there are a couple of films for me personally, which which might contest that spot. Okay, cool. But yeah, not many, for right. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I look forward to them. Well, we like peace and happy resolution here in this completely arbitrary task, which we've undertaken (laughs) for no good reason. 
Let's do it. Jerry Maguire. At number one. Number one on the list, and it's probably going to be there for a while. And that is going to do it for this week on The Last Star in Hollywood. Everything that we do here at The Last Star in Hollywood is sponsored by you for the low, low price of five bucks a month. That's cheaper than a cup of coffee any place that I can walk to. God, yeah. (laughs) For sure. You can get access to a whole plethora of extra things, including unscripted and unedited hangout shows and bonus episodes of Stars and Swords, my literary podcast, and bonus episodes of The Last Star in Hollywood, including, can you do the list? We've done four now. Can you remember oh, what gosh, they are? Oh, gosh, let's see. Yes. So, I don't right know if they're going to be in order, <laughs> but we did Robin Hood. Robin we Hood. We did Prince of Gone Thieves. in 60 Seconds. Absolutely, we did. We did... Dirty Dancing. I'm dancing that was dirty for one? you over yeah. here. That's a visual pun that's not going to work <laughs> at all on the podcast. And the first one that we ever did? I thought Dirty Dancing was the first one. No, what was the Last first Action one? Last Action Hero was the first Last one that we Action ever did. Hero. So funny. Yep. That's a weird collection of that's films. A weird but one. If you yep. would like to hear us talk about all of those, Dirty Dancing versus Jerry Maguire. Two films Ooh. enter the battle arena. Which film is better? Just just gut instinct right now. Dirty Dancing. But only I'm by sorry. a little bit, right? Only by a little only bit, by a but little it's bit. so good. Okay, so if you want to hear Elizabeth, just yeah. rap, both of us, both rhapsodize of us. about one of our favorite films of all time. Definitely. If you like this energy, you're on the last star in Hollywood, <laughs> yeah. head on over to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash next word where you can find yourself in excellent company alongside our wonderful superstars who would scream into a phone for us any day and we for them too reciprocally because it takes a village, you guys. We are recording just a little bit ahead because my glamorous co-host here is going to be out in LA shooting a film at the end of the month. So we're recording a little bit ahead. So normally we read the names of all of our superstar patrons, but if you have joined very recently as of the release of this episode, we might not know about it yet because we're delivering this to you from the distant past. (laughs) How exciting. So forgive us if your name is not on this list and you have already pledged your support. We'll catch up, I promise, when Elizabeth gets back from L.A. Elizabeth, who are we thanking this week on the show? As of now, our $8 a month superstar patrons are Leslie Skipa, Louise in Dallas, Megan Lauder, Phoebe, Art Kilmer, Kimberly Bear, and Self on a Shelf. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you guys so much. We will Mm -hmm. always, I promise, make sure that you are safely secured in a U-Haul if we are moving to San Diego together. (laughs) We'll make sure you're, you're just real safe there. And you've got all the good snacks. We'll make that happen too. Excellent. Next week on the show, we jump ahead to the first of Cruz's two 1999 movies and a major turning point, arguably the major turning point in Cruz's entire career. Hey, go spend two years working under the most exacting director of the modern era and make it sexy. Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut here on The Last Star in Hollywood <laughs> next week. Until then, thanks for listening and take care. We'll see you next time.